Well, greetings to all of you. Good to be here with the sun shining on beautiful Sabbath day. I have several prayer requests here for prayer needs. The first is your prayers are requested for Dorothy Monroy, who is battling a staph infection, bursitis in her right hip, and a sprain in her left hand. That's a strange combination of difficulties, but the staph infection, I'm sure, is the most needful in terms of our prayers. And many thanks uh, for the prayers which have already been received. Some of you already knew about this. Well, that's from the Clark, Corichata, and Monroy families. I talked with Marty uh, Hart a few minutes before services <clears throat> to get an update on the situation there in Texas. And uh, Jace is in therapy now. Uh, the report is, and this is coming through there again, his mother, Marty, is going to be able to see Jace uh, tonight and get a, a better update and a, a first-hand view, in other words. But the best word she has now is that he is uh, speaking at a second-grade level. Uh, and his right side is still apparently paralyzed, and they're working with him in therapy there to try to uh, rehabilitate that part of his body. So there has been some brain damage very obviously there, some uh, nerve damage. So I'm sure Jace would certainly appreciate our prayers, and so do those who are connected with him and know him and our friends and relatives. So please continue to remember Jace in your prayers, and Marty as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to go after a tragedy such as occurred, and try to, as much as we can, at least offer comfort. And I know I always feel so inadequate, there's nothing you can say that really can comfort. Maybe it helps a little that others can help be there and at least show that they love and care, but uh, there's no way you can take away, under present circumstances, the, the hurt that is there. Uh, so the terrible agony uh, begins to fade a little bit after a while, but I think from what I've seen of widows and widowers over the years that really the worst part is after everybody goes home and you're all alone and no one there to share it with, and Marty even expressed that she's always loved the Sabbath, but right now the Sabbath is the hardest time for her because she has so much time on her hands that she's not busy with activities and you have more time to, to sit and think and, it, and it's just really hard to handle. So please remember her in a continuing manner. Uh, you know, Barbara lost Dale. It's been a long time ago now and you and I think of Dale at times and we remember Dale and he'll come up in a conversation here and there but in large part, we're over it. But Barbara's not. She still has that loneliness and that those feelings that come, and the hurt is still there after living with a man half a century. <laughs> you know, uh, that just doesn't go away. So we should still be remembering Barbara in our prayers as well, even though it's been 
a much longer time, and you know the the ache and the hurt is not as intense as it was, but it's certainly still there. Um, here's another thing to pray about. It's not along those lines, but I received a letter from Paul Mueller oh, about three days ago, and uh, he's decided to swap continents uh, and come over here. <coughs> There are certain difficulties uh, in doing that. <laughs> it's, it's a strange paradox that if you want to come to America to live and be a productive citizen and you go through the proper channels and ask, you'll likely be told no. But if you come across the border and thumb your nose at the border patrol, they'll wave and say, see ya. Uh, well, maybe it's not quite that bad, but almost. So he has asked that uh, Nelson and Gordon and I put our heads together uh, and, well, he mentioned Charles as well, since he stayed with Charles, and see if we can figure out the best way for him to accomplish his purpose. Uh, I know there was a fellow named Roloff Hugenhout who wanted to come over here, young fellow. He has some uh, difficulties, uh, and he was trying to immigrate. And he was filled out papers and all kinds of things and was having difficulty. So I said, let me call immigration for you. I think I related this to you several years ago. And see what they say. See if I can help you. So I called and I got somebody in Atlanta with the immigration service. And uh, I talked about the ins and outs and the legalities of him coming over and what he would have to do. And she said, you didn't hear it here, but... My recommendation would be for him to get a vacation or, as they call it, holiday uh, permission to come over and come on into the country and get lost. <laughs> she says, we don't have the time, the energy, or the money to chase him down. Uh, so it was off the cuff and off the record, but she says, that's, as far as she was concerned, that was just the best way to go about it. So, you know, there may... There's coming a point where they're going to grant amnesty to all those who are flooding across the border now. And uh, they can't find them all, couldn't find them all if they wanted to. So I don't know that that is the answer for Paul, but uh, it could be. But we need to consider the different ramifications involved because he, he did, you know, he's talked about it before, but this time he wrote and said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Uh, help me figure out the logistics and the best way to go about it and and how how do I work and make a living over there? I don't want to be a burden on anybody. So we have quite a bit to consider and think about and you know that's a it's one thing for an American to swap states or swap cities. Uh, you're not changing continents, you're not changing cultures and backgrounds so much unless you're from the south or from Joyce or you know, or Chicago maybe, but uh, it's not quite the change it is when you swap continents and leave a family behind, you know, clear across the ocean. So uh, I think that our prayers would be in order for Paul to see that this happened at the right time and in the right way and that God would be pleased with what he does because it does have certainly large ramifications for him, for his family, and and so on. So let's pray that it work out in the best way according to God's will. 
I have no doubt that God wants his people to begin to gather. Uh, I don't believe it's the start yet of the major gathering because nothing has happened that would create that kind of interest. I don't think that's too far away, but right now it's just those who recognize a need to be part of a preparation crew to get things done. And Paul clearly sees that need. He clearly sees that what we're doing is biblical, that it's something that God would approve of and indeed asks us to do, and he's willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to do so. I don't think his wife is going to be too greatly alarmed over the situation. Now, yeah, to, to one degree or another, but <clears throat> she was joking with another member of the church over there before he came back from here. They said something about him staying over here, and, and she passed it off with a joke. Of course, that was a joke. When it comes right down to it, it may not be a joke anymore, I, you know. But uh, she's never liked the church. She's always been very antagonistic because when she married him, he was uh, Dutch Reformed. And shortly thereafter, he started going to the Church of God. And uh, to her, that was a vast betrayal because he was Dutch Reformed from birth and then changed courses. So it's been a difficult situation at best, being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And uh, she's a fine person, you know, as far as I know, but there are some differences there that create conflicts. It's just, if you're not in those situations, it's better not to get in them. Uh, I'll tell you that from a lot of experience with a lot of people that have been in those circumstances. Okay, I don't think this one needs as much prayer. Uh, next Saturday night, we will have a game night. You might pray that attitudes will be right, and <laughs> we'll love one another, and and not throw chairs at each other. Uh, bring your favorite games and snack food. Uh, that'll be at 6.30 uh, next Saturday night. I, I like to take advantage of the sundown coming early during the wintertime, and we are in winter now, if you didn't notice. I noticed this morning at, at 4 o'clock that uh, the temperature was 7 degrees at my house. By 8, it was around 11 or 12, so... You know, that was almost double the temperature by then. But at four, it was seven degrees. So at any rate, uh, next Saturday night, 6.30, we'll have a social here. Uh, we might have some of those organized socials we've had in the past with theme nights or whatever this winter, but I think it's good to have some of these more informal ones where we can just get together and fellowship and enjoy games and conversation together. So... I look forward to that. <clears throat> okay, we've had a, a time away from Nehemiah, and I want to go back there today. Uh, I was just commenting to Marla this morning that Ezra and Nehemiah are basically a history of what happened when they came back out of Babylon but why do they need to be in the Bible if they don't have any meaning for us today? God always works in patterns. And the pattern of what occurred in that day when they came out of Babylon is a pattern that will be repeated in the end time. That's the way God operates. It's the way he works. 
history repeats itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, God does say he's going to create a few new things here at the end that we haven't known about, lest we could say, hey, I knew about that, but he's going to pull a few hats, rabbits out of a hat. Maybe that's the wrong analogy, being a magician's term, but uh, he's going to show us a few things that he didn't tell us. But they will not be dire things. I think that if there's something bad that is going to happen, God is not going to do anything bad to us that he does not warn us through his servants, the prophets. It says that in Amos 3 very clearly. However, I don't think he is bound in terms of pleasant surprises. And that is the context of that where he says, I'll show you some new things. We would not be upset if God pulled a pleasant surprise on us, would we? That wouldn't bother me in the least. If God just gave me something that I would enjoy and love and appreciate that I couldn't read about ahead of time. Now, there are a lot of good things in here he says he's going to do, and those are encouraging and, and give us hope. But he may even pull a few things on us that are good that we will say, wow, that he didn't even tell us about. Now, I would look forward to that kind of thing, and I wouldn't need a prophet to tell me that one. I'd just be real happy it happened. But there's no sense, really, in telling the story of Ezra and Nehemiah if it isn't going to have some bearing and impact on our lives, is there? Otherwise, it's just a nice story about what they did when they came out of Babylon. But it's so easy to put Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets together with Ezra and Nehemiah and see what the end time will be. Because Haggai and Zechariah so clearly show how a temple will be built in the end time, uh, just as it was in the time when they came out of Babylon the first time. And that being the case, so clearly, then when we see Nehemiah tacked onto the end of it, even though the scriptures aren't initially quite as clear or quite as obvious about Jerusalem being built back as they are about the temple itself, the very fact that we have a temple Jerusalem sandwich here in Ezra and Nehemiah shows you that you can't have a complete meal unless both are included in the end time as well. So if the pattern starts out with Ezra in the temple, then it has to continue with Jerusalem as well. And I think that we are seeing, I know I am seeing more and more and more scriptures showing that Jerusalem has to be built back, and not just in terms of the villages without walls of Zechariah 2. The Jerusalem specifically has to be built back. And there are so many scriptures that do not fit the Jerusalem in the Middle East. I'm seeing more and more of them as I study the scriptures every day, it seems like. A new one just pops out of the, just leaps off the page at me to show that the story is indeed correct. I'll not go into all of that today, but there is more and more evidence showing. So let's get on back to the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> 
You remember that uh, Nehemiah was upset because he knew that God had chosen a place where Jerusalem had to be and the walls had to be built, had to be rebuilt, and that uh, he came, examined the building site, decided what to do, and then got to work repairing the city. And the people were working hard and and filling the breaches and so on. And then they had to guard what they were doing because there were enemies that would stop them if at all possible. And they even got to the point that they would work from dawn till dark and have to take care of their needs of eating and everything when the stars came out. And they didn't even take off their clothes, except they took them off to wash them, put them right back on. They they were working so hard and so long hours, they were so tired, they just fell down and went to sleep. Didn't even undress for bed. Then you even have to get up in just a few hours and go right back to work. So, you know, when you're that tired, you don't want to get up and even put your clothes on. You just, okay, I'll just go back to work. You are working with a will, with an energy, with a motivation, with a commitment when you're willing to work that hard. And perhaps I see that ahead of us, where he tells us in so many scriptures in Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and so other, in other places, Isaiah as well, to not fear but to work, specifically with the temple. <clears throat> so let's get on to chapter 5 where we were the last time I spoke on this. It it sort of changes directions here and gives a different uh, viewpoint or a different angle to the problems they faced. There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now there are Jews who had been left behind, who were not all taken into captivity, and those who had gone to Babylon in captivity and then returned uh, had lived apart from those Jews that were still there for 70 years. And a lot changes in 70 years. If you're 70 years old, look at your life and see how much has changed since the time you can remember as a child. When you were, maybe you can remember back to five or six or seven years of age. And there's been a lot of change in those years. <coughs> so they were having problems getting back together, and some were taking advantage of others. For there were those that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. And they're implying there they needed a lot of food because they had a lot of kids. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. Well, there was a drought. Hard times were upon them. And in order for people to give them food to allow them to eat and to live and to work, they actually required them to mortgage their homes. Now, is that an approved way from God that you would help the poor? Now, these people were not sitting around doing nothing. God says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that's not a mistranslation. It's just a very plain statement of Paul in Thessalonians. But these people were not in that category. They were quite willing to work. They were putting their all into doing this, even staying up 
and working, what, 12, 16, 18 hours a day? In the summer, you can have, what, 17, 18 hours of daylight in some places. Well, not this far south, but um, certainly you could have 15, 16 hours. And if you didn't quit till after the stars were out, how, who knows how late that was. So they were certainly working. And they were doing something God wanted done. And yet those who had money, who had things around them, made them mortgage their homes in order to eat. Not only their homes, but their lands, their vineyards, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There are also some that said, <clears throat> we have borrowed money for the king's tribute. They were so poor, they even had to, buy, uh, to borrow money to pay their taxes. And that upon our lands and vineyards, taxes on them too. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children, is their children. I mean, we're all Jews. There's no different. We have kids. They have kids. And yet we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. They were even requiring them, it appears, to marry certain ones in order that the family might eat, mortgaging their daughters off. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. You know, we have to borrow money to eat. We have to borrow money for our homes, for food, for everything we have. And we don't even have any way to pay it back. For other men have our lands and vineyards. Then Nehemiah says, And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself, he thought it over, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you exact interest, every one of his brother. And I said a great assembly against them. <laughs> he lined up a battlefield, set a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold to the heathen, brought them out of Babylon, made a way possible for them to come back to the promised land, which were sold to the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren? Are you going to do to your brethren what the Babylonians did to them? What's the difference, whether they live in Babylon under the service of the king or whether they come back and live under the service of the Jews. Are you going to make slaves of them just as Babylon did? Or shall they be sold to us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. He stopped their mouths. But he wasn't done. Also I said, it is not good that you do. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Don't you understand that God is involved and God put these people in captivity for a purpose and punished them? And what you're doing to them is virtually the same thing God did through Babylon for punishment. Are you God that you can punish them and treat them the same way that God did because of sin? 
I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us quit making them pay interest. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day. Don't even wait. Do it now. Their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money, and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that you exact of them. Give them back everything you've taken from them. Give them money, the interest back, everything. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Just stop for a moment. What if somebody went to the banking system here in America and said, Look, you've mortgaged these people's homes. You've extracted all the interest you can out of them. Give them back. Do it today. Give them all the interest back. Wipe all the loans out of your books and give it all back. You're making slaves of them. Do you think the banking system would rebel? I think God is in the process of making the banks do that right now. Maybe it isn't in an overt way the way Nehemiah did, but they've cheated us long enough. God's going to fix it. He's going to wipe it all out. The banks are all going away in this country. Of course, so are the people, because we're going into captivity for our sins. But let's turn this around a little bit. What if you were in the position of those who were getting wealthy off of others? And some preacher came along and told you, wipe out all that debt, give them their houses back. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, it's that same old human reaction. It's the same old American human reaction. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. But... These people recognized the truth that was there, and they responded properly. And I can show you scriptures, and probably will before we're done today, that show that God is going to take care of this and in a wonderful fashion. So he told them to restore it. Then said they, we will restore them, and will require nothing of them. So will we do as you say. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. The people said, we'll do it. And then he made the priest promise that they would make it happen, that they would follow up on it. Also, I shook my lap and said, so God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performs not this promise. Even this be, uh, be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Eternal, and the people did according to this promise. So they were willing to forgive all that usury and all that reproach and actual slavery that they had put upon them. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year even to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, that is, 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. So, in contrast to those greedy Jews who were taking from the poor and not letting them have even any wiggle room, taking everything from them, he said, I haven't eaten of the king's table. 
But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable to the people and had taken of them bread and wine beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bore rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. All the governors that had been there before had taxed the people. They had the power to do that. Nehemiah said, I didn't do it. Yea, also, I continued in the work of this wall. Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered here to the work. So he worked, and his servants worked, and they wanted to be sure that they got the job done. So they weren't buying land and building houses at that point. They were busy getting the work done. Let's go back for a moment to Haggai 1. I think we're all quite familiar with that. My Bible's just about worn out back there on those pages in Haggai, Zephaniah, and first part of Zechariah especially. The people would say, verse 2, The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet, Is it time to dwell in your fine homes and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus says the Eternal, consider your ways. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. You look for much, and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew upon it. Why? Says the eternal of hosts. Because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. So there's a time coming, and I think it is very near, when God says people are going to have to leave their homes. They're going to have to come and work in God's temple. The direction I received from Scripture and in other ways, was that we needed temporary housing. We didn't need anything permanent. We didn't need anything fine and fancy. We just needed mobile homes, tin cans, you know, a little, little better than tents, metal tents, I guess. We didn't need to establish fine, permanent homes, but that we would be here temporarily and then move on. So that is pretty much, I think, the attitude and approach God wants us to take. We're not here to settle down. You know, when they went into the, to uh, Babylon, he says, Jeremiah told them, this is going to be a long captivity, seven, 70 years. So build houses, build homes, plant vineyards, raise your families. Seventy years is a long time. But now we've already had over 70 years' experience in the end time of being captive of the Babylonian system. And it's time to break free from that, and it's time to have temporary, unfancy dwellings and get a work done. And we're going to see much clearer, I think, very shortly, how that work needs to be done and how to go about it. I think we're being shown where to do it and what needs to be done. So this is a very real scripture a real passage, a real story for us. Let's go back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. 
Now this is a time when God said he is going to turn his face back to us in chapter 54 and that we are to lengthen the cords of our tents, uh, our temporary dwellings, and make room for a whole lot more people because God is going to begin gathering his people and smiling on them and blessing them in ways that it is beyond our ability to even comprehend. It says in verse 11 of 54, O you afflicted, tossed in with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones or your foundations with fair colors and with uh, precious stones and so on. And all your children shall be taught of the eternal, and great shall be the peace of your children. And you'll be established in righteousness and far from oppression. And it's not speaking of the millennium because it says, verse 15, Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against you shall fall for your sake. So when God turns his face and begins to bless anybody who comes against us, God is going to cause to fall. This can't happen. He won't allow it anymore. He said he's created the waster to destroy at the end of verse 16, but he's not going to be allowed to destroy God's people. No weapon, verse 17, that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. Remember Micah 4 and Isaiah 41, where he says, I will make you a sharp new threshing instrument, sharp teeth, and you will thresh the governments and the peoples of this world who come against you. Those that come against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage. This is what God is going to do. It's what he's promised us of the servants of the eternal and their righteousness is of me, says the eternal. And then he makes a call. Hey, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. And he that has no money, come you. Buy and eat, yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's going to be freely given. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Now, he's, he says here in this verse the same thought, almost the same words of Haggai 1. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently to me, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. When he turns to bless this time, he'll never turn away. He'll never turn his face away again. And from that point on, we will head toward the kingdom of God, and God will continue to smile on and bless his faithful from that point on until glorified in the first resurrection. Nehemiah was taken care of. The commentaries speculate that either being the cupbearer for the king of Artaxerxes was either a very lucrative position. The cupbearer didn't just, he wasn't just a servant that brought the wine in at night. He also had to taste it because a lot of people like to poison kings. And his life was on the line every night or every time he brought a wine glass to the king. So either a wine bearer or a cupbearer, was well paid, or 
when Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to go back and to build the walls of Jerusalem, he sent with him a lot of money, a lot of wealth, in order to accomplish the job. I suspect that that perhaps is the answer to that as opposed to uh, just having a really high wage as a cupbearer. You know, cupbearers weren't that hard to come by. If one fell over and croaked when he drank the king's wine, they could get another one. Uh, so I think that it was the kindliness of the king toward Nehemiah and toward the project that probably caused him to send plenty of money for it to be taken care of. Now remember that that was the pattern with the temple, first of all. That uh, the king said, open the storehouses, open the treasures, give them everything they need to do the work that is to be done. And he says that the end time Cyrus will be given the hidden treasures and the treasure and the riches of darkness, or I think it's vice versa on that, but be given treasures and that he will use them for the benefit of God's people. So tying these together, it does seem when God begins to draw his people together, we're not going to have to worry about, well now, where am I going to work? How can I support myself if I come out there in the desert? Because God is going to have shown and given the wealth that is necessary that we might all eat and might all be able to work at the temple without having to hold jobs out in Babylon. That's the way it was then, and I believe that pattern will be repeated. So when you see this thing start coming down, that's what you're going to see. I think I can guarantee that based on God's Word. Uh, this isn't just some daydreaming I'm doing. This is a reading of Scripture and putting them together and all God's words, remember? Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all Scripture is given for inspiration, for one thing, and for the knowledge we need to do what we need to do. Instruction and righteousness, four things it mentions there. So God is going to provide the wherewithal so that people can come and they can buy and eat without money. Everything will be provided. So he said, I didn't tax you. Now that is the approach that I have tried to use here. You might remember in Worldwide 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that we got coworker letters on a pretty steady basis. Now, we had already been told by God how the church was to be uh, supported. He had a system set up to take care of that, a system to take care of the church and its work, a system to take care of the feasts, and a system to take care of the widow, the poor, the orphan, and so on. He had set it up so that all those functions might be fulfilled without having a socialistic government which is what we're getting in America today, fascism, controlled and run by businesses, corporations. God didn't set it up that way. But on top of the system God had set in place, along with free will offerings, we got letters all the time about, well, we need a building fund, we need a a swimming pool restitution fund for the evangelists or, you know, whatever it was needed that day. I don't think they put it quite that way. 
but we knew. Always jerking us for money. Nehemiah didn't do that. And I've tried to follow that pattern here, not this one specifically, but from the Bible. You know, if God set it up this way, that should be substantial. It should be enough. Don't always be begging the people for money. And we simply don't do it here when it comes to feast offerings either. And that's one place where they really got after it. If you came to the feast with money and you came with second tithe and, you know, give all the offerings you can give and, you know, you know the story. But I don't believe that's God's way. And uh, I never have, from a church standpoint, asked you for money. I don't remember ever having. Does any of you remember me having done that? I don't remember it. And I don't intend ever to. Just do what God has instructed you to do. And it's between you and Him. And that's enough. But we're coming to a time when God is going to make sure Every last one of us and those who come, we're going to have all we need to do the job he has given us to do. And he's going to tell people, give it up wherever you are, whatever continent you're on, from the east to the west, and come and work in my temple. He says they'll come from afar in Zechariah 6 and come work in his temple. And Isaiah 55 makes it very clear that all our needs will be taken care of. And I believe that is true, not only of the temple, but also of uh, Jerusalem itself. Because if you're going to be, build villages without walls, and perhaps one of those will be Jerusalem itself on its original site, then you're going to need the wherewithal to do that as well. So God is going to take care of it. He goes on to say in verse 17 of Nehemiah 5, Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers, beside those that came to us from among the heathen that are about us. So this is a pretty big deal, and Nehemiah was feeding at his table 150 people a day. Now that which was prepared, prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep, for just to supply his table a full beef, six sheep, uh, birds or fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days, store of all sorts of wine. I don't know whether they just got wine every ten days and drank it for ten days, or they only got wine once every ten days. Perhaps that was the case. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. So it wasn't wrong for him to say, look, You've been taking advantage of these people. Stop it now. Give it all back to them today. And then he was moved to say, I'm not doing what previous governors have done to you. You have what you need. And I'm not taking taxes from them to do it either. I'm just su supplying the need. And God is going to do that. Isaiah 55 makes it very clear. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So the whole attitude 
of Nehemiah had to be that of serving, of helping, of getting the job done, not of exacting tribute and taxes and interest and everything they could get out of people, but to provide what they needed to do the job God wanted done. So that is the pattern set in Scripture, and the prophecies specifically say that that will be done. Now sometimes, though, he expects people to step out in faith and begin to do what he asks them to do before he provides the wherewithal. I think he has asked that of us. And you have responded admirably in so doing, you who are here and you who are planning on coming. Responded to God and said, if that's what you say needs to be done, I'm going to, be, I'm going to do it. And I'll do it on my own hook. And that's what God does tell us. He says, you leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, and there I'll deliver you. He doesn't say, I'm going to deliver you and then go. Why would that require faith? Well, God didn't give Abraham a road map and say, Jerusalem is here. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything you've ever known and grown up around. And I want you to go. Now, here's plenty to go with you. And here's a map that shows you exactly how to get there and directions. Didn't do that with Abraham. He just said, get. Abraham got up and got. And he learned where to go along the way. Now, we had a vision of what needed to be done, I believe, and therefore we may not perish. But we've had to learn along the way, haven't we? And we're still learning. We're learning more and more as this time goes on and the plot thickens. Not a plot, but God's plan. The plan thickens, put it that way. So, he got clear how the thing is to be financed and how it's to be handled. Well, that's, that's a big, important thing, isn't it? To know how God is going to handle the finances and how he's going to handle the food. I, I appreciate that being in the story so that we can read that and know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he works in patterns, and that he's going to do the same thing for us. And not only is it in just what would appear to most people to be a historical book, but it also is reiterated in a prophetic book, such as uh, Isaiah. Now it came to pass, chapter 6, he, he covers another aspect of difficulties we're going to face and how they are to be handled as well. It came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah in Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies, they had lots of enemies, named a few, and there were more beyond that heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not upset the doors, I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Now at first they thought, ah, these feeble Jews, they, you know, they're setting their hand to do something they're not going to be able to get done. This is a stupid thing that they're trying to accomplish, and they can't get it done. So they probably sort of pass it off. They don't have to worry about this. They'll get tired. They won't be able to do it. They'll run out of food. They'll starve to death. We don't have to worry about it. But then they looked around, and the walls were all up. The breaches were all filled, and everything was done, but the doors hung upon the hinges. You come to that point. 
<coughs> then the enemies woke up and said, wait a minute. This thing's done. Remember, the whole project only took 52 days. When you start a major building project, you don't expect to see it happen very fast. Not like that. But when you get enough people working, it can happen pretty fast. It's like going to St. George now. If you get enough people and enough equipment, it's amazing how fast they can put up buildings. I drive to town, and they, two weeks later I go in, man, there's a whole big new store, a new motel. I didn't even know they were breaking ground, and now it's done. I don't guess it happens in two weeks, but man, it seems like they just go up in a hurry. You look around, and they got a new subdivision somewhere. It was just bare ground. And you look around, and there it is. So maybe that's the way these people were. They didn't think that many Jews could do that big a project very fast. <laughs> Suddenly they looked around, and it was about done. Then they got alarmed. Verse 2, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. He said, oh no. I like that one. The plain of oh no. Oh no, I'm not coming. I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come talk to you? Now, they were making out to be friends. Let's come down and have a nice conference, and we'll talk business, and, and everything will be cool. Oh, no, I'm not coming down to you. I've got work to do. He had his priorities right, and he probably suspected the problem. Yet they sent to me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. No, I've got work to do. Sorry. I entitled this series, Getting the Focus. Nehemiah was focused. He had work to do, and he was going to get it done. And he didn't do too much aside from that. Then sent Sanballat, his servant, to me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Graven in the invitation, if you will, RSVP. Wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu said it, that you and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause you built the wall, that you may be their king according to these words. So they made four friendly overtures and were turned down, and now comes a threatening letter. We think that what you're doing here is building this wall up so that you can create an insurrection, a coup d'etat, take over and rule Judah yourself. <laughs> the king had already made him governor, for pity's sake, and yet they accused him of wanting to be the king to rule it all. And you have also appointed prophets to preach of you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. So he said, you're, you, you got the, you're paying these guys to blow smoke to say that you're going to be the king. Now shall it be reported to the king according to these words? They're threatening to take it to Artaxerxes and tell him what was really going on because they had the inside scoop and they knew what these Jews were doing. Can you imagine when we start doing the things God has said have to be done 
the enemies that are going to come out of the woodwork and say that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And you're taking too much upon yourselves and you must be paying people to shine your boots and talk about the things that have to be done. I don't think those people had time to do that, do you? They were working from can see to can't see. They were so tired they didn't have time to play political games. Then I said to him, saying, There are no such things done as you say, but you made them up in your own heart. You just dreamed these accusations up. False witness. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hand shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. God tells us over and over in the context of Haggai and Zechariah and Zephaniah to fear not, but work, to be of good courage, to be strong. Now how did he come to have that strength? He had these enemies arrayed against him, making all kinds of false accusations. He didn't pay any attention. But he did turn to God and ask for strength and help and courage and power to get the work done. That's where, that's where he turned. Afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Medabeel, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay you. Yes, in the night will they come to slay you. So this threat deepens. Now the threat is perceived that they're going to come in the night and kill you, Nehemiah. Now what do you do? And I said, should such, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his own life? I will not go in. He had prayed to God for strength, for courage, for help. You know what? He believed in God. He trusted God. Now we're doing a work today or exploring possibilities, and in some of those possibilities that we are looking at that God may want us to do, there are people saying, they're going to kill you. I've had people tell me that. Not our people, but people on the outside even. They'll kill you over this. Well, I guess we better just pull our heads back into our shells and pull our feet and our tail in and hunker down like a turtle. No, I don't think so. Now, I know full well what people are capable of doing. We have seen in this country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. People Waco'd and Ruby Ridged and 9-11. And we're going to see more. But our God is God. And we can trust Him. We can trust His Word. And we will not pull on our horns, but we will move forward in courage and in faith and in strength and power, and we will accomplish God's purposes, not because of our strength, because we don't have any.
because we will go to God like Nehemiah did and we'll ask for his strength. That's the only way it can be done. He even told Zerubbabel, who will be given great power, not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. The only way anything is going to be accomplished is with God's strength, with his power, and with his protection. There's a strong lesson in here about that, and it's a pattern for today. So don't run in the church and try to hide. <laughs> don't run into the temple and go in and prostrate yourself on the Holy of Holies and try to hide from your enemies. Get out there and do the work. I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Here was a hired threatener about a hired killer coming to get him. But he did not flinch. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid, and do so in sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. It was not a sin to go into the temple. It was a sin to go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in once a year at that time. It wasn't a sin to go in the temple per se. But when God has told you, do this, and then somebody comes along and says, I'll kill you if you do what God says, then it becomes a sin against God if you do what man says instead of what God says. Doesn't it? Take no thought for your life. They're not him who can kill the body, but him who can kill body and soul. Obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 I think it is a sin not to walk in faith. If we can't trust God, we can't believe God, and when he promises us protection and help and guidance, and we don't believe in it, then it's a sin against him. And I think you can say that literally. What do the Ten Commandments say? We're to put God ahead of everything. To put him first and not have any other God before him. And anything that we put ahead of him or above him is a God. It's an idol. So if we put protection of our physical lives ahead of God and the work he commissions us to do, then we've broken the first commandment. Pure and simple. Verse 14. My God, think you upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. Now, that's reminiscent of David in the Psalms, where he would go to God and say, please take care of my enemies. Let them eat their own sword. And on the prophetess, Noadiah. So they had a woman in there fighting them too. And the rest of the prophets, that have put me in fear. said, God, you take care of them. Don't let them put me in fear. i got work to do. So we need to be willing to be stand up and be accounted and not back off, but go forward and do what God wants us to do. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were very discouraged, frustrated, and depressed in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was worked 
of God. Now, that's an interesting reaction. They actually realized that we couldn't do this on our own and that it had to be the work of God. And they hated and were depressed by what God had done. They didn't just hate the Jews who had done the work. They hated God. Because they did perceive it was his work. Now that's like when God had to tell Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. I sent you, and they're rejecting me when they reject you. So don't worry about it. So they rejected Nehemiah, and they recognized very clearly that 52 days was not long enough to, to do what they had done, that it couldn't have been done by them. But they had to have had the help of God. Now you'd think, logically, wouldn't you, that if you perceived that God had done this work through these people, that maybe you ought to pay attention <laughs> if God was there, maybe you ought to think about that a little bit and say, I want to be where God is. But they didn't. Now maybe that gives us a little insight in a thing that I think is really hard probably for all of us to grasp. It certainly is with me. When I read that God says only a 10% remnant will respond and come to his church in the end time to build the temple. He will send leaders, and only 10% of the church will recognize them for what they are and come to them. Maybe some of them will even recognize that when these things are accomplished, that God had to be there because those weak, feeble people couldn't have done it on their own. And yet still, there is a level of carnality there which will not allow them to say, if that got done, God had to do it, I think I'll go there. Human nature is so powerful and so strong that 90% of the people who see the temple built and who see Jerusalem built in her own place will deny it when they actually see it done. Not just a thought, not just a dream, or some paranoid idiot out in the desert who would say such a dastardly thing. The work will be accomplished, and they'll still ridicule and hoot, even though they may recognize on some level that God had to have done it. Isn't that amazing? Moreover, in these days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For there were many in Judah sworn to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. So, had the right connections, in other words. Also, they reported his good deeds before me, and uttered my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear." So they were all encouraging this guy to hate, to go against, to conspire, if you will, against Nehemiah. There was a political thing going on. But Nehemiah didn't care. 
He had a work to do, and so do we. <clears throat> I think that it is important we go through and analyze, look at, see some of these principles that are here in this book, because it's going to be us very shortly if we do our part and God chooses to use us to do this. Now, it's clear to me that it has to be done. I've seen too many scriptures now. And I just hope that we can be humbled enough and obedient enough that God will allow us to be a part of what he is about to do. The story of what he will do is very clear. The story of Cyrus in Isaiah uh, 44 and 45 is very clear. It is a prophecy that must happen. There will come an unconverted man who will say to Jerusalem, you must be built and to the, the temple your foundation must be laid. And he will be given the hidden treasures of darkness of God to finance the whole thing. It's got to be done. God is not going to use the Jews over there to build his temple. The Jews, God does not recognize as his people at this time. He said, you won't see me, you won't know me, until you bless those whom I have sent. If they were snakes and serpents then, they haven't gotten any better since. If anything, they've gotten worse. God made Jerusalem desolate for many generations, according to Isaiah 61. No inhabitant and no man going there. I read that to you. Did I go back and read that one in, uh, I don't remember, in Zechariah 7? I don't remember now whether I did or not. It won't hurt us to read it again. Is it 7 or 8? Where was it? I know it isn't five or six. Okay, yeah, it is seven. Um, he's talking here of history. The word of the eternal came to Zechariah in verse eight, say, and then. He gives him words to say, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy, and compassions every man to his brother. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, the poor. Now this is an end-time prophecy in Zechariah. Christ isn't here yet. This isn't millennial. It's the conditions prior to that. He doesn't come back till Zechariah 14. This is in preparation for that. Here we're instructed don't do what they did back in Nehemiah, where they exacted usury and made people mortgage everything they had to eat. Don't do that. It's saying, don't do what was done in the past. Let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Now those that Nehemiah talked to directly in that scenario did repent and did restore. But Israel as a whole never has. They've always pulled away. They've always wanted to take advantage of the widow and the orphan. And they were doing that in Christ's day. They were even taking the homes away from their own parents. 
And Christ talked to them, to them about it in, what was it, Matthew 23, I think. Maybe that's not the place for that one. Sometimes those skip me, the exact location. Yet they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. And the words which the eternal of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets, and therefore came a great wrath from the eternal of hosts. Now this is a historical account of what they did do in the past, but it is written in a book of the future. In other words, that which was done in history is something that is going to tend to be repeated in the future. Zechariah being an end-time book concluding itself in the return of Christ to the Mount of Olives. Now, therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, says the eternal of hosts. But I scattered them as a historical record and as a warning for the future. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned for they laid the desirable or pleasant land, the promised land, desolate. And Isaiah 61 says that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will be laid desolate for many generations. That has never happened to that Jerusalem in the Middle East. It's not in the history. There have always been people there. But the real Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations up until and including today. There's a lot. I, I went back and read through Zechariah this morning again. There's just an awful lot in here that shows that these things are projected to happen. They will have to be done. Notice chapter 12, and we did go through this recently, but I want to tie it in here a little again. The burden of the eternal, of the, the burden of the word of the eternal for Israel, not against Israel in this case, says the eternal, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within it. So now pay attention. This, this is the God of creation. This is the one who made you. This is the one that breathed air into Adam's lungs and made him live. Pay close attention here. This is God, not man speaking. Zechariah may have written it, but God is the one who originated it. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. People are going to come to hate both the church as a spiritual Jerusalem and the physical Jerusalem that is going to be built as villages without walls and the original site, which also will be turned into a city again. And in that day, this is again speaking before Christ returns, will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now we know from the book of Revelation, don't we, the God's true people, Revelation 17, 18, are going to have the beast and the false prophet come against them. We've seen back there in times past how it's going to be the church 
against the rest of the world. Satan will deceive the whole world. And if it, weren't, if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. So this thing that is coming is going to be so very, very powerful that it is going to make the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the, Hindus, the Shintoists, the Mormons, the Catholics, the Presbyterians, everybody on earth except a true few are going to come together in one world government and their only enemy will be God's true people. His church has called out once. The whole world against us. Now in that counterfeit Jerusalem in the Middle East, beast and the false prophet, God, uh, Satan's two witnesses, are going to set their headquarters up there. Probably the Jews will build a physical temple there. And they're going to have, whether through flying saucer or let down in a parachute with great lights, is going to appear when their Jesus comes, a false Jesus. But lightning goes from east to west, and every eye will see him. Satan is capable of calling fire down from heaven. I ask you, is he capable of lighting the heavens up and having his Jesus come down? Maybe he, or one of his angels, his demons, will appear as a Jesus of light. They do appear as angels of light, don't they? Maybe it will be one of the demons manifest himself looking like a man. Come down to that temple in Jerusalem. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He could even create an earthquake that would split the counterfeit Mount of Olives in the Middle East. And the whole world would bow down. I think it has to be that dramatic. Can you imagine all the people of the earth, all the religions of the earth, bowing down unless it is that dramatic and that real? And so real that even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. And the whole world will worship the beast. And God is going to have his true witnesses, his true people, in the true promised land, the true Jerusalem, pitted against the rest of the world. I think it's going to happen that way. The only thing that I doubt is that I don't have the words to express how powerful it will be and how wrong it will be. And they will all gather around the true Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem, God's church, and the true Jerusalem, and they will fight against it.
and they will defeat it. And those people who form the church, the real spiritual Jerusalem, will have to flee for their very lives. Now it does say in Matthew 24, those who are in the land of Judea. It does not say Jerusalem proper, does it? Because the villages without walls will be scattered in the true original Judea. Not all of those people will be in Jerusalem proper. And therefore, the cities of Judah, as Jeremiah 7 or 9 verse 11 and Isaiah 58 and 61 say, the cities of Judah will no longer be desolate, as will Jerusalem no longer be desolate. Oh, and they'll take it over, and it will become Sodom and Egypt again. But before that, when they rise up, they'll gather against it and they'll be cut in pieces. Doesn't God say he'll make us a sharp threshing instrument? Doesn't he say that he will give power to his witnesses, to his people? Not just the two. Micah 5 says seven, even eight principal men will go out. So it's not a work of just two people. It's the whole church and other men in it who will go out against the Assyrian who comes in to try to destroy the church. They'll confront the Assyrian when he comes into our land. This is our land. This is where God gave us to be. This is the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the promised land right here in America. I believe that now with my whole heart. I think we've believed it in principle all our experience in the church, haven't we? We used to believe this was Manasseh, promised land of God, that he had promised this land to Abraham and that he had put us here. We always believe that. That's written very clearly in uh, the United States and British Commonwealth in prophecy. This isn't anything new. It's just more complete, that's all. It's just a better picture with more of the pieces fitted in. There's nothing new. And yet it is because the detail adds more detail. The more pieces that come in, the greater we can see the future and the vision of what has to be done. Herbert Armstrong had a picture. All that's being done is detail being filled in. When I say this is the promised land, I believe that since I was eight years old. When I first read the booklet, I thought this was the land of Manasseh. Now I'm beginning to believe it's the land of Ephraim. I think that's fairly clear now in Scripture. But it's still part of the promised land. So I, I don't think we're out on that great a limb, really. The whole world's not going to gather against that Jerusalem. That's going to be their headquarters. That's where they're going to go. The Jerusalem they're going to hate is God's Jerusalem, which will be built in her own place, as this chapter says here in a few verses. In that day, says the Eternal, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. 
The only strength spiritually is going to be God's true Jerusalem, his people, and in her own place. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. Flames of fire literally coming out of their mouth for any who would hurt them. On the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. I think that that clearly implies that the Jerusalem we have known is not in her own place. If this was the promised land, then this is where Abraham came. This is where he resided. This is where he lived. This is what God gave him. And because of sin, the Anasazis, the ancient ones, were sent to Egypt, the new Egypt, in ships, and were only allowed to return in the 1600s. But we still haven't obeyed God in the promised land. So God, once again, is going to send Israel into captivity. One-third of us will die of famine and pestilence. One-third of us will die by the sword. One-third of us will go into captivity in other parts of the world. But God's true people are going to remain in their own land, and the Assyrian will come into our land, that which was promised, after us. And God will stop them short until it's time to go to a place of safety then he will allow it to be overrun again. And for 42 months it will be stomped into the ground and become Sodom and Egypt. And the witnesses will come there. And there they'll be killed. And the world is going to have a party like they've never partied before. And three and a half days later they're going to have an oh-no moment. <laughs> That's going to be... I hope I'm still alive and remain and can laugh when that happens. Oh, no. <laughs> Cork the champagne back up. Well, that's enough for today. But I hope that we're beginning to really get the focus and the vision and the understanding of what God is going to do with his people as opposed to what he's going to be doing with the world. I know I commented to someone just yesterday. You know, we can read the news. We can read the various Internet sites about what the devil's doing and what man is doing and all the things and the plans that they have. And that's well and good to a certain point. But what is the most important? What the devil and his people are doing or what God is going to do with his people. It's so easy for us to get overbalanced into watching what is happening in the world and lose sight of what God is going to do and what we need to do to become part of it. And I made the statement, which I'm going to work at living up to. Maybe I ought to at least read the Bible and God's Word about what he's going to do as much as I read news about what's happening in the world on the Internet. Couldn't I at least give God as much time in His Word and His plan as I give to Satan and His plan? 
Well, when you put it that way, it's a little different, isn't it? We can take one scripture, watch and pray always, and misinterpret it a little bit and think that the big thing is to watch the news. No, I want news of God. I want news of His plan. I want to know how I can be part of what He's doing, not just running from and afraid of the world. See, Nehemiah didn't allow himself to get thrown into that trap. He saw all the plans of his enemies and what they were going to do and what they threatened to do. And he says, no, I'm not going to go hide in the temple. I have a work to do. So yes, we need to keep an eye on things and be aware of what's going on in the world, but that should not be our main focus. Our main focus had better be what God needs done. And isn't that what he tells us in Haggai 1? Isn't he say, quit worrying about all the physical and the material around you and get busy doing what I want done. Don't you see? Inflation is occurring. The price of food and gas is going up. And you work, and it's like you got a hole in your pocket and there's nothing left. There's nothing there for you. Focus on what I want done and get my temple built. And get Jerusalem built. And have a place for God's people to come. And by the way, I'll finance it for you. i got a plan. Somebody from the world is going to come in and take care of this so you can get busy on the work and not have to worry. Godspeed that day. I hope it comes soon. But that's his plan. And if there's anything I'm driving at here in this series, is let's focus on what God wants done and get busy doing his work, not sitting around worrying about the enemy or hiding in the temple and cowering in the church saying, when are they coming after us? not the way Nehemiah was. We need to be righteous, and we need to be bold as lions. And we need to have strength and courage and power and fear not and work at God's work.